Dave had everything, but he was satisfied with nothing, at least in this season of life. He was at the top of his profession, couldn't get much higher than him. He had won all the awards, he had all the accolades, he, he had a, a growing and seemingly happy family, and yet, and yet he wasn't satisfied. But you know what it was deep down for Dave? It, was, it wasn't so much dissatisfaction as it was fear. You see, Dave's, Dave's body was a little bigger at this stage in life than he wanted it to be. His hair was a little thinner than he had hoped it would be. His kids talked back and rolled their eyes way more than he wanted them to. His job was, it wasn't boring, but it wasn't challenging. And, and Dave had this fear, a fear that sounded like this. Is this all that there is? Is this all that there is to my life, a body I'm not happy with, kids that are smart, Alex, and hair that's fading away faster than the evening sun? Like what? Is this all that there is? And so one Monday morning, Dave decided to blow up his life. That's, that's how he puts it. That Monday morning, he didn't go to his usual meetings. He didn't even go into the office. He stayed at home. And while his wife was off running some errands and his kids were at school, he sat in the front room of his house and he stared out the picture window. And then he watched as his neighbor, who just so happened to be the wife of a colleague, she pulled into her driveway right across the street. She got out of the car. It's clear that she'd just come from the gym, and he watched. And then she was out in the yard doing some chores, and then she went and checked the mail, and, and he watched. And then he made a decision. He said, today's the day that I'm going to make things interesting. Today is the day where Dave... Dave is going to get to know Beth. And I think you know what happened next. Dave entered his midlife crisis era. Today, we are continuing a teaching series that we've been in for a few weeks called Eras, where we're looking at different stages and seasons of life. And the big idea is this, that, that God is good and God is faithful in every era, in every season, even, even in your midlife crisis season. And there is, there is one scripture in particular that we're holding on to as, as kind of a promise that sits at the center of this ongoing discussion, and it comes to us from the Psalms, and my hope is that at the end of this series, we'll have this word memorized. And so if you would indulge me yet again, would you say these words with me from Psalm 37? I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or as children begging for bread. The goodness and faithfulness of God endures in every era, even in the era we're talking about today, which is the crisis era of life. And this too has been memorialized in the memes that we share, and I'm gonna share some with you, but you'll notice that, that some of these simply have to do with getting old. And the reason some of these memes have to do with getting old is because getting old and realizing that, that time is running out on you is one of, the, one of the inciting factors, inciting incidents for so many of the, the midlife or 
quarter-life crises that people tend to go through these days. Uh, take a look at this. this. This first meme is one of my favorites. It says this, is it possible to have a midlife crisis if you don't have a life? Excellent question. <laughs> this one speaks to getting old. This one is trying to be the cool dad around the other dads. How do you do, fellow fathers? <laughs> I feel that one deeply. This is a tweet or whatever we call the things that are on X these days. Monica says this, I'm in Target. I'm trying to buy a photo album. I asked where they, might, where they might be. Worker did not know what a photo album was. I said it was a place to keep pictures. He sent me to the tech aisle. I am one billion years old. <laughs> I'm feeling that one too. And this last one is uh, a reel that I saw on Instagram. And it is, uh, it is the response that, that everyone who is aging feels when they first hurt themselves doing absolutely nothing. Take a look at this. My shoulder is dislocated literally. This is, see this arm? This is as far as I can reach it. Same with this side over here. It's very swollen, I want to say. <laughs> My shoulder is dislocated. All I did is get up out of bed. Some of you can relate to that. I know I can. So let's define, let's define crisis. Let's define this era that we're talking about it. Uh, that word crisis actually is, is Greek in origin. It's, it's a Greek word originally, crisis, and it's used a lot actually in the New Testament. It's typically translated judgment or reckoning. And it makes sense, doesn't it? When someone is in crisis, it, it's, it's a moment of judgment or discernment or decision. Something is happening that, that you've had to make a decision is, is not good, it's, it's not ideal, and, and something needs to change. And, and the stakes feel high. The crisis era in life, in particular of the midlife crisis variety, is a moment of judgment. It's a moment of reckoning. You are taking a look at what's happening in your life. And there is, there is discontent. There is anxiety. There may be regret. There may be grief. And often at the heart of it, there is fear. It's a season of discernment and wrestling marked with discontent, grief, and fear. Discontent with the life that you've built, wondering if it's the life that you've wanted. Grief over dreams that you had that, that maybe aren't going to become fulfilled or, or, or a health that's fading or relationships that have ended. And fear. Fear that you have, you've lost hold of your one chance to build the one life that you've always wanted. Fear. Uh, the middle-aged poet and philosopher, Dante, remember the Inferno, Dante, that guy? You had to read it like in middle school or high school? Dante actually references a midlife crisis. So this has been going on for a really long time because he was a middle-aged poet. And Dante says this. He says this about himself. He says, midway along life's journey, I woke to find myself in a dark wood. The crisis era is that season in life, sometimes in the middle of life, where you are awakened to some of the anxieties you have about the life that you've built, and you feel like there's this decision point that you have to, you have to address, this, this reckoning that has to happen where you say, do, do I stay with what I have? Or, or do I have to change what I have? Because it feels like something's got to give. And if you can relate to that sense at all, then you may have had or you may just be in your crisis 
era. Now, the decision that, that far too many are tempted to make when, when they come to that, that crisis season in their life is a self-indulgent and destructive one. This is where the, the tropes come from about somebody buying a sports car that they can't afford or swapping out spouses or, you know, running up the credit card. This is where those come from because the instinct, when you, when you get to this crossroads of crises and saying, something's got to give with the life that I built because I'm not happy and I'm afraid that this is all that there is, the instinct is to do something that is very self-indulgent but ultimately self-destructive. And, and if you haven't felt this impulse yourself, certainly you've reached a stage of life where you've seen other people around you dive into this impulse. Like you've got a friend who it seems like they are, they are happily married and then all of a sudden, she is just off with somebody else living a totally different life and it catches everybody by surprise. You're like, what happened to Wendy? Wow. Or you've got another friend who, who dives deep into some hobby to the detriment of his family. and It's like they don't even exist anymore. Or, or you've, got, you've got somebody in your family who, who is personally raising the stock of Amazon through all of her credit card debt. Or, or you've got a friend who, who, you, who you knew here at church and all of a sudden not only does he not come to church but he doesn't talk to any of his friends, he's ghosting everybody in his life as he goes off and like forges this new identity as this whole different person. You're like, what has happened to Richard? What in the world? You, you've seen people go through this and what happens is they hit that crisis moment where they go, what I have, what I've built, who I am, I don't think it's working for me and I'm filled with fear that I'm missing out or I'm messing up and so the only thing I know how to do is to, is to do what feels good because it gives me a sense of control over my life. It helps me feel alive because I'm feeling kind of dead. It helps me exert some agency over my existence and it's always rationalized the same way. Well, I had to do something and I have to be what? Happy, have to be. The Apostle Paul actually articulates this mindset in Philippians chapter 3. I think it's verse 19 where he says this. He says, people who have this mindset where I'm going I'm to destroy myself through self-indulgence, their end is, in fact, destruction. Their God is their belly, meaning they just go with their gut, whatever they want to do. And their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The decision that far too many make when they reach the crisis point is destructive self-indulgence. I want you to think of a house, like the typical West Houston single-family, single-story home that was built in the late 1960s, early 1970s that's so common around here. This home was well-kept and has been recently renovated. In fact, if you walk inside of this house, it is very Joanna Gaines' top-shelf target. But if you walk through this house, you'll notice that in the corners of most of the door frames, there are cracks. In fact, a lot of the doors don't even shut. And, and there are seams in the drywall that are starting to show, and there's pieces of tile that have kind of buckled and broken in various places around the house. And if you've lived in Houston for any length of time, you know that when you see all of these things, when you see the cracks and you see the broken tile and the door won't shut, you, you know what's going on. What's the issue? What's the problem? Yeah, you, you've been there too. You've got foundation problems. Think of the midlife crisis era as the cracks are starting to show and the tile is starting to break and the doors won't shut 
But rather than address the issue, you say to yourself, well, we need a second story. We're going to build more onto this thing. And then what happens, what do you you think happens? You take a a faulty foundation and you put more on it, more pressure on it. You're just going to make the problem worse. Things are just going to get worse. And and that's what someone who is self-indulgent and self-destructive is ultimately doing. They're seeing the cracks and they're doubling down and saying, well, I just need to do more of me. But you're, you're putting more pressure on what is clearly a faulty foundation. And so the, the decision point that you actually need to come to if you're in this era of life is, is one that Jesus actually invites you toward. The, the opportunity in front of you is to, is to see the, the cracks that are starting to show in the life that you have built that are, that are manifesting themselves in terms of discontent and grief, anxiety and fear, to look at those cracks and ultimately see them as a gift to interpret them through the lens of your faith and see them as an act of grace from God. Because God is giving you the gift of recognizing that there is a faulty foundation upon which you have been building your life. And with your eyes open to this truth that the life you've built is is starting to crack, it's starting to crumble, you're not not sure if it has integrity, you're not sure if it can deliver on on the joy and the peace that you've been aiming for all this time, God is giving you the gift of opening your eyes to the root issue, to the root problem. He's giving you the gift of being able to see that there is a faulty foundation. And and that's precisely the the analogy that Jesus uses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 5, goes all the way through chapter 7. And this is Jesus' most epic sermon. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law, the expectations that God places upon humans, and he turns it up to 11. He's like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But if you even hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And everybody's like, oh man, I'm a serial killer. Jesus is turning the law up to 11. And the reason he's doing that is not just to show us the ideal way to live, but the primary motivation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount turning the law up to 11 is to show us the faultiness of our foundations apart from him. And to get us to a point of saying, I I, I can't build a a good and lasting and joyful life on, on my own effort. And, and with, my own, I, I, with my own two hands, I can't. And then Jesus brings it to a culmination, that teaching to a culmination, by talking about foundations. And he talks about someone who's built their house on sand. Listen again to what Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is saying, some of you are coming to a realization that you have built your whole life, your identity, your whole sense of self, you have built your life on sand, and that's why you're seeing the cracks, the winds and the waves of an aging body, of a changing spouse, of complicated kids, of an underperforming 401k, of an unchallenging career. These winds and these waves are eroding, and they are, they are starting to crumble this thing that you have built, and what you're realizing is the aspirations and assumptions that you built your life on aren't 
working for you. And if you persist, it's going to crumble for you. What you need to do is use this opportunity, this revelation, this discontent, turn it into a holy discontent by taking the opportunity, receiving the gift to address the root issue. You need a new and firm foundation. And of course, what Jesus is getting at is that he believes that he is the firm foundation. He, he's saying, look, build your house on the rock. And he's not talking like Dwayne Johnson and Moana. When Jesus says you can build your house on the rock, what, what, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying when, when the frailty of your foundation starts to show, it is an invitation, an opportunity, a gift of grace from God for you to, to do the difficult work of swapping out what you've built your life on. You see, every single one of our lives, your life, my life, their life, is built on a series of assumptions and aspirations. And the assumptions and the aspirations that you've built your life on will either hold when the difficulties of life come or they won't. And Jesus is saying, who I am, what I have done, my promises, my truths, they are the only trustworthy, trustworthy elements for a foundation upon which you can build your life. So that no matter what happens in the end, you're still standing. And not only standing, but you have a sense of peace. And you have a hope that will last. That, that's Jesus' point. Now, now you might be saying, okay, well, what, what in the world does that look like? And what, what makes Jesus trustworthy as a, as a foundation? It's one thing for me intellectually to say, okay, well, he's my source of forgiveness and he's, my, he's like my Lord and Savior, but what does it mean for him to be the foundation of my life, and what makes him trustworthy for that? Well, well Jesus is trustworthy to be the foundation for your life for, for two primary reasons. Number one, uh, number one, because he has, he has suffered under the faultiness of earthly foundations. Like, he, he knows what you who are in your crisis era are going through. Like, he didn't have a crisis himself, but he knows what it's like to, to, to have a life that's built on earthly human assumptions and aspirations and to have it fall apart on you. So like if you, if you have built your life on, on a reputation among powerful people, Jesus knows what it is like to have your reputation unjustly ruined. If you have built your life on curating certain relationships that are going to make you whole and happy and perfect, Jesus knows what it's like to have your friends and people of, of respect and, 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 and people of, of importance in the community lie about you and betray you. If you've built your life on the lie that, that, that somehow you're going to be able to get a nice enough house or have enough money in the bank to feel a sense of wholeness and peace and accomplishment, Jesus knows what it's like to have his whole life literally sold for 30 pieces of silver. If you're building your life on the idea that you're always going to be healthy, that you're always going to be vital, that you're always going to be able to, to have your, your physical health as something to lean on and you're going to stay in shape, you're going to be the one person who goes to the gym till they're 99, you're going to be that person. Jesus knows what it's like to have your body at a young age beaten, broken, mutilated, discarded, and ultimately die at the age of 33. Like everything that we can build our life on, Jesus has been crushed under the weight of it when it proves that it can't save you or help you. He knows. 
He's had the whole house fall in on him. But he has risen from that mess. He's risen from that alive and powerful, and he did that not only to earn your forgiveness, and you are forgiven, and secure your future, and you are in him eternal, but he did that to offer you something better to build on while you're still alive. And the something better are his promises. The something better are his truths. The something better is is him in general. And the invitation is for you to take a tough look at your life and look at what are the the aspirations that I've had? What are the assumptions about myself that I've believed? What what are the goals that I've tied my sense of well-being to? And to do the difficult work of digging those things up and saying, this is failing me. Throw it to the side and say, but this truth that I am a forgiven, loved child of God, this will hold. This other truth, oh, this one is failing me. But this promise, that no weapon formed against me shall prosper, that not even death can take me from the Father's hand, and that even if I lose every earthly thing in this life, I have an eternal hope that cannot be shaken or stolen from me. This will not fail me, doing the difficult work of uprooting and replacing. That's the invitation. Now, that might sound hard, and I'll tell you what, it is awful. It is not easy. When, when you are looking at the things you've built your life on and how they might be failing you, it can feel like dying. But remember, in the kingdom of God, death leads to life. Amen. And that's where this is headed. So now, if, if you're looking at your crisis era and you're saying, all right, I might need to... I might need to do some foundation work here because the cracks are showing and rather than selfishly indulge myself, I'm going to dig in and receive the invitation to rebuild my foundation a little bit. First of all, awesome. Second, you're going to need some things with you to carry with you. You're going to need three things, all right? You're going to need a life of prayer. You're going to need some prophets to speak truth. And you're going to need some patience. Let me quickly walk through all three. You need prayer. You need to cry out to God with whatever words you can muster. First of all, thank you. Thank you for showing me that some things that I've built my life on are failing me. Thank you for loving me enough not to just let me crash and burn. Thank you. And, 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 and prayers of protection. Lord, protect me from my worst impulses because I am, I am, I am, tempted, to, I am tempted to buy the car or the Apple Vision Pro or... I, I, am, I am tempted to look at someone that's not my spouse. I am, I, I am, tempt, I am tempted, I'm so tempted to burn it down. Protect me from the worst impulses of myself. Protect me. And he will. And then you need some prophets in your life. We talk about this every single week. One of the important things in your life, every era, every stage, are people who know the Lord and who know you, who can speak truth to you. You need to invite some people into your life to speak truth to you so that as you're going through this season of kind of deconstructing and rebuilding around the truths of Jesus, you've got people who have the permission to look at you and say, you are headed in the wrong direction or you are driving yourself into a tree and you need to stop lest you die. Now, it may become clear to you that at the beginning, that little story I told, that's the story of David and Bathsheba. 
That's the story of King David. You know what King David had? King David had Nathan, who was a prophet, who burst into David's room and was like, bro, we got to talk. You are burning this kingdom down with your selfishness, and it will not be tolerated. You need people in your life who can say that to you, who can speak truth to you. And then you need patience. Because God will deliver you and rebuild a foundation for you. He he will help you replace the lies with the truth of Jesus. But it is hard work and it takes time. But God will deliver you out of the darkness of a season of crisis. Let me say that again. God will deliver you who belong to him, who cry out to him. He will deliver you from a season of crisis. But hear me, it often takes time. But God will deliver. You need patience. You will get through this. Promise me, as your pastor and your friend, that on your worst day, when you have the most discontent, when you are the most filled with grief, when you have the most regret, when you have the the question mark over your life of, am I missing the point is larger than it's ever been, on the worst day, promise me, give it one more day. Because God will deliver. God delivered, God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. He delivered Jonah from the whale. He delivered David from Goliath. He delivered Peter from prison. He delivered Paul from chains. He delivered Lazarus from the grave. He delivered the leper from disease. He delivered the disciples from the storms. He's delivered his people through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, through the valley of the shadow of death. And guess what? You're on the list. He will deliver you too. But you need now, if you, if you are in relationship with someone who's going through one of these seasons of life, the invitation for you is this. Number one, have some compassion for them. It's really easy to be angry at people who are discontent with the life that they're living with you. But understand that they're going through the difficult work of questioning the foundations upon which they built their life. So a little bit of writhing about is understandable. Have some compassion and get ready to be the prophet for them. And I know you don't want to be. But if you know them, and you have the eyes to see that they're in a season of of decision and transition and crisis, kind of questioning everything, that they're tempted to self-indulgence, but you don't want them to do that. If you have the eyes to see that and a heart to feel that, then understand God has given you that eyes and that heart for a reason, and it ain't to stay quiet. It is so that you who love them and know him can say something to them. Speak truth that they need to hear. Call them out, call them home. Call them out, call them home. Tell them that you love them. Tell them that they belong to the Lord. And, and, and they may not like it. In fact, I hate to tell you this, but more often than not, in the story of Scripture, the prophets end up killed. <laughs> Won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Amen. Every David needs a Nathan. Four years ago, Lisa and I were told that our, our house was falling apart. Uh, quite literally, it was, it, it was falling apart and it, we, we had some serious foundation problems. We ended up having to put in 60, six zero piers around and underneath our house. And the engineer that we were working with at the time, I remember asking him, I asked him, do we really have to do this? And he looked at me and he said, well, if you don't, it's only going to get worse. And then he described the process of coming into our house, ripping out the floors, being homeless for about three weeks, and digging these holes inside of the house, digging tunnels underneath the house. And I, and I asked him, I said, is this, 
is this going to be as awful as it sounds? And his words to me were this, I kid you not, oh, it's going to be worse. (laughs) But, he said, it's going to work. And he was true, he was right on both counts. It was worse than I thought. But it worked. If you are in a crisis season of your life, thinking of blowing the whole thing up, hear this word of warning. Do not. Receive the invitation. Receive the gift of understanding that some of the things you've been building your life on aren't working for you. And, and do the work of digging those things up, examining them and replacing them with the truths of a God who loves you, truths that will last and that will not fail you. And I'll be honest with you, it is an awful task. But it'll be worth it. And it will work. Just ask David. Soon after he's called out by Nathan, he sits down to write a song, write a psalm. He writes Psalm 51. And in the middle of that psalm, he, he articulates his prayer for a new foundation. And he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. And God said, yes. New foundation. New hope, new peace. And he will do the same for you. Amen.